Our scripture reading today, on which the teachings are based, comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, verse 23 through 27. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled which said, They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Hear the word of the Lord. In the weeks up to uh, Easter, millions of Christians spend time thinking about the meaning of the death of Jesus. And what we're doing in these weeks is we're looking at what St. John, the gospel writer St. John, tells us about the last hours of Jesus and Here this week, we get to Jesus actually upon the cross. And we'll look at what we learn about uh, the cross for the next two or three weeks. And when we look at what we're told here, we'll learn that on the cross, Jesus was solving one ancient mystery, and as a result, giving us two immeasurable gifts. He's solving one ancient mystery. As a result, he's going to be able to give us, he's giving us two immeasurable gifts. First of all, the, uh, what is this mystery? Well, verse 24 tells us that Jesus being stripped, we'll get back to that in a minute, stripped of all of his clothing, fulfilled a scripture. Uh, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That is Psalm 22. Now, not only do we have here a reference to Psalm 22, but we also have in a couple of seconds, in a couple of uh, verses, we'll see this next week, Jesus saying, I thirst. And I thirst, whereas this uh, reference to the garments comes from verse 18 of Psalm 22, uh, it's in verse 15 of Psalm 22 that we read the psalmist saying, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. But most famously of all, Matthew and Mark tell us that when Jesus was on the cross, at the, at the climax of his, or the apex of his agony, he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And that is a quotation of verse 1 of Psalm 22. Now here you have Matthew and Mark, John and Jesus, all telling us, if you want to understand the meaning of the cross, you've got to look at Psalm 22. It's one of the clearest uh, assertions of these narratives about Jesus' uh, uh, death. If you want to understand, even Jesus himself is saying, if you want to understand my death and what I'm doing up here on the cross, you've got to look at Psalm 22. So 
let's do it. And when we do look at Psalm 22, we'll see that taken in its context, read as a text, remembering how the people received it when it was first written and in the centuries afterwards, we'll see that up until the cross, Psalm 22 was one of the great mysteries of the Hebrew Scriptures. Why? Well, listen, you go to Psalm 22, and we see in verse 6 to 8, it's describing a, um, a public spectacle. So verse 6 says to 8, says, I am scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They herald insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. It's a public spectacle. And the person is dying. Uh, we're told in, um, in verse 14 that he's so emaciated you can, you can count his bones. Verse 14 says, I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. And as we saw in verse 15 of Psalm 22, we're told that this is a man dying of thirst, dying of thirst, not just a little thirsty. My, his tongue is swelling up to choke him. But maybe most amazing of all is verse 16, where the psalmist says, a band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. Now, what? Here's the mystery. This is a psalm of David. You can go to Psalm 22. You'll see at the top it says a psalm of David. Now, the, there are many places where David was in straight, narrow places. There are many places where he was surrounded by enemies. There are many places where he was being hounded or assaulted or uh, uh, persecuted. But here's what's different about all the other psalms of David. This is a public execution being described. Psalm 22 describes a public execution. You cast lots for somebody's garments only when that person has been so utterly abandoned that they're, they're dying or they're dead, and it's the executioner's spoils was part of their salary. Piercing the hands and the feet, people staring and gloating and laughing as you're dying of thirst and dying of, uh, of being run through with, with iron. Where did that happen in the life of David? And the answer, it didn't. Of course it didn't. He was the king. He was never publicly executed. And that's not the only part of the mystery. All the other places where David is uh, in difficulties, he's defiant. Always defiant. He's always calling God uh, to, uh, to uh, you know, uh, rain down, you know, wrath on the perpetrators. But when you read Psalm 22, the speaker is bowing in submission and accepting this judicial punishment. This isn't just enemies. This is, a this is an execution. This isn't defiance. This isn't like David at all. It's bowing and accepting it. But the most amazing part of the mystery is that the last part of Psalm 22 says that though he's being executed, God was going to deliver him. And when people saw it, all the nations at the end of the earth would turn to the Lord now, it's not until we get to the cross that we see the solution to the ancient mystery. In fact, without the cross, there is no solution to this mystery. Uh, Peter, in his, his first great speech or sermon in Acts, Acts chapter 2, says this. He says, being a prophet, David foresaw and spoke of the Christ. In other words, David, in the midst of his suffering, I'm sure, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, David discerned that there was going to be a greater David, a greater sufferer, 
experiencing a greater abandonment, a greater deliverance to receive a greater kingdom. Now, if it's true that everybody, including Jesus, says, look at Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If you want to understand the cross, what do we learn? What do we learn? Well, here's what we learn. First, Jesus' sufferings are infinite. Here's a man who has been flogged, who's dying of thirst, who's been run through with iron spikes, his hands and his feet, who's had a crown of thorns on his head, and yet when he cries out, he never cries out, my hand, my hand, my feet, my feet, my head, my head. (laughs) He cries out, my God, my God. You know why? He's being abandoned. That's what the stripping means. That's what everything means. He's he's being abandoned by God. He's being abandoned. He's experiencing, he's receiving the penalty for the sins of the world. And here's why. What is sin, according to the Bible? Well, there's a lot of ways of characterizing it, but one of the ways to characterize it is it's trying to get away from God so we can live life the way we want to. It's trying to get away from God so we can live life the way we want to. If you want a perfect example of the human heart, uh, you can go at the, to the parable of the prodigal son and you see the place where uh, you see the younger son who comes to the father and says, give me my part of the inheritance, give me my money, I want to get as far away from you as possible so I can live life the way I want to live it. That is the essence of what the Bible says the human heart feels toward God. You know, God's okay as a kind of source of things, but basically I want to get away from you so I can live my life the way I want to live. But the Bible also says that since we were built for God and by God, we need the face of God. We need the presence of God the way the green earth needs the sun. You know, if the world would suddenly stop revolving on its axis so one half of the earth would lose the sun, you know what would happen. Everything would freeze. Everything would die. And the Bible says we need the presence of God our hearts, our minds, our souls, our being need the presence of God. Like the green earth needs the, uh, needs the, face, of the, uh, the face of the earth, needs the face of the sun. Therefore, it would be the most horrible and yet the most absolutely just and fair punishment that God could possibly give us to simply let us have our way, right? You want to go, says God? You want to go away from my presence? Then go away from my presence. That would be the worst thing possible. It would be the fairest thing possible. And that's what we see up on the cross. We see Jesus Christ experiencing what we want. We see Jesus Christ experiencing what we deserve. He's being abandoned by God. And just as if we would lose the sun, everything in the earth would be frozen and destroyed. So when Jesus Christ says, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's losing the face of the Father. And he's being plunged into the absolute freezing eternal darkness of the soul. That's what he's experiencing on the cross. Infinite suffering, far greater than the spikes, than the thorns, than anything else. And you say, infinite suffering... There's plenty of people who say, wait, I have a problem here. He's God, isn't he? I mean, isn't Jesus Christ God? And doesn't he kind of know everything and all this stuff? How could, his suffering can't be all that great. Well, look, I once saw a really pathetic thing. I saw a cat, a little, a young cat, a little like a, a kitten. I saw her leg get broken. 
Oh my gosh, she was pitiful. She squealed and she ran. And of course she had to have the one leg up that was broken and she was gone around on a three and she squealed and she ran. It was just pitiful. She suffered, didn't she? She suffered, yeah. As a pastor, I've also seen one spouse watch another spouse die in a bed. I've seen one spouse lose the love of his life watching her die in bed. Wouldn't you say his suffering exceeded the suffering of the cat? Wouldn't you say because of, his, because of being a human being, because of a, a being of a much higher order of being, self-consciousness and reflectiveness, don't you think the agony of watching a life mate, the, most, uh, the love of his life, dying, wouldn't you say, call that in, really infinitely beyond what the cat experienced? Yeah. Higher order of beings bring along higher order of suffering. And therefore... Jesus Christ, when he was on the cross, losing the love in the face of the Father that he had for all eternity, losing a love infinitely greater than we will ever know, he suffered infinitely more than you and I will ever suffer, just as his being is infinitely greater than ours. Infinite suffering is what the cross is about, but secondly, infinite faithfulness. It's also, it's, Psalm 22 tells us infinite faithfulness. Why? Because you see, when he says, my God, my God, you know what that language is? If you were here in the summer, we were talking, going through Deuteronomy last year, or yeah, it was last year now, right? Uh, that's covenant language. When you get into an intimate covenant relationship with God, God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And so to call him my God, even when he's being abandoned, to call him my God, which is intimate language, which is loving language, which is loyal language. You know what you've got here? When Ahab, Captain Ahab in Moby Dick was going down, you know, stabbing Moby Dick and being drowned by him at the same time, he didn't care. And what does he say? It's a great line. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. You know, I'm in hell and I still hate you. Okay. From hell's heart, I stab at thee. And you know, that's great writing. That's great rhetoric. It's amazing. I hope when I'm, you know, being drowned by a whale, I'll be as eloquent. Okay. <laughs> but it's only a metaphor, is it not? It's only a metaphor. He was going into the ocean. He wasn't going into hell. But here is one person who literally could say, I'm in hell's heart. I'm experiencing something worse than you would ever experience in hell because I'm infinitely greater than you. See? And yet, here's what Jesus is saying. From hell's heart, I still love. I still love my father. And I still love my people. From hell's... He's, it, that's perfect obedience. That's perfect faithfulness to us. That's perfect faithfulness to his father. See, he's not just dying the death we should have died, being abandoned. He's also living the life we should have lived, being perfectly obedient. And that brings, because of the infinite suffering and the infinite faithfulness, infinite redemption. Because see, it's not just that Jesus Christ is dying the death we should die and therefore our sins are being put on him and they're gone. But he's living the life we should have lived so that when we receive him, it's not just that our sins go to him, but his righteousness comes to us. Not just his suffering pays for our sins, but his faithfulness becomes ours. That's what the Bible says. God made him sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that's worth rejoicing about. And it's only in Jesus Christ that Psalm 22 is not a lie. Because Psalm 22 says that this sufferer, when people from all around the world, 
Every tongue, tribe, people, and nation from the farthest ends of the earth see it. It's going to turn them to the God of Israel. And the only way that has happened, and it has happened, is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the solution of the mystery. That's the meaning of the cross. Infinite suffering, infinite faithfulness, and infinite redemption. Now, because of that, we see in this text, you know, pointing us to Psalm 22, uh, besides that, in this text, we see Jesus Christ saying, because I've done that, I give you two immeasurable gifts. Now, what are these two immeasurable gifts? He covers our shame, and he puts us in family. He covers our shame, and he puts us in family. First, he covers our shame. See, ordinarily, when Romans crucified a criminal, they stripped him naked, so he died naked. And this was part of the torture. This was part of, um, uh, of, of the punishment. And why? Because not only in ancient cultures, but also in the Bible, and actually also in human experience, nakedness refers to two things. Defenseless vulnerability and shame. Defenseless vulnerability and shame. First of all, defenseless vulnerability. Nakedness makes you defenseless against everything. To be naked means you're defenseless against the weather. Would you have liked to have come here today naked? I don't think so. Okay? Can't keep the weather out. See? Not only that, you can't keep branches out or stones out. It's hard to walk without shoes on. It's hard to move about or go anywhere without clothes on. You can't keep the weather out. You can't keep, you know... Uh, things out in the world out, but worst of all you can't keep people's eyes out because now they'll without clothes you have no control over what they see no control at all they see just what you look like they see everything and there's nothing worse than that and that leads us to the second thing which is shame in the bible and in human experience nakedness refers to shame now why there's one place in the bible there's one place in the Bible where nakedness is not referred to shame. Before the fall, before we, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, before we turn away from God, we're, it's, what does it say about Adam and Eve? They were naked and unashamed. You know, that has to be added there because as far as everybody else knows, to be naked is to be ashamed. Oh, my gosh. But they were naked and unashamed. You know why? Because when we were in a perfect relationship with God, there was nothing to hide. There was no need to control what people saw. There was no need to put spin on anything. There was no need because we had nothing to hide. There was no problem. We could be utterly transparent. We didn't mind if people looked all the way down into us. All the way into us. Why? Because we weren't afraid of being rejected. We knew that even though we'd be utterly known, we would be utterly loved. But the minute we turn from God, it's the most important, one of the most important things the Bible tells us. The minute we turn from God, the minute we decided we're going to be our own bosses, we're going to call the shots in our own life, immediately we needed to cover up. Immediately we needed to put on the fig leaves. Why? Because instantaneously we knew there's something to hide. There was an un... Uh, David, David Atkinson and Kierkegaard, two different people, both say some amazing things about the idea of shame. David Atkinson says... Um, Shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. Shame is that sense of unease with yourself at the heart of your being. What is shame? Shame is if there's anything you want to hide, if there's any thoughts that you've got, 
If you if you if there's any if there's any lustful thoughts, any petty thoughts, any selfish thoughts, any uh, begrudging thoughts, if there's anything about yourself that you wouldn't want the whole world to see, there's shame in you. See, if you had a perfect relationship with God, there'd be nothing you need to hide. But shame is that deep unease we have with ourselves. We know that if we were known all the way to the bottom, we'd be rejected. That's what shame is. And Kierkegaard has a great spot where he says, in every human being, in every man, he says, there is something which to a certain degree prevents him from becoming perfectly transparent. But he who cannot reveal himself cannot love, and he who cannot love is the most unhappy man of all. And the Bible says, because we have, because we know there's something wrong with us, because we know there's things that people, that we would not want other people to see. You know, I don't know whether you believe in God or not, but this is, you have to admit this, that there is something about you, there are many things about you that you have got to hide from the world, otherwise, or other people, otherwise you'd be rejected. And that's the re- so the and the Bible in that original story about nakedness and shame also tells us about the fig leaves. Let me put it like this to you: Why is it that some of you um, work so hard? Why why why, do you, why are you such workaholics? Why are some of you such perfectionists? You're making everybody miserable, including yourself, all around you. You know. Why are some of you so obsessed with how you look? So obsessed with your weight? Why are some of you so, um, why are some of you obsessed with replaying old tapes and, and, and nursing grudges saying, if it wasn't for her, this wouldn't have happened? Or if you had my father, of course, that's, you know, you, you, you'd know what it was like. You know what these things are? The grudges, the beauty, the work, the success, the perfectionism. You know what all these things are? These are fig leaves. You're covering. You're ashamed. You know if people really saw you to the bottom, they wouldn't love you. You'd be rejected. So you've got to control what they see. The resumes, the clothes, they're all fig leaves. Wouldn't it then be incredible to get some of that, even a little bit of that original unashamedness back? Wouldn't it be great to have an identity so unassailable a certainty about your value, so strong. A deep ease in the center of your being about who you are that you wouldn't care as much about what people think, that you could be much more transparent, that you wouldn't be as driven, you wouldn't be as worried about how you look, you wouldn't be as angry about the way in which people have treated you. Hmm? Wouldn't it be great? The, the Bible says, look at the cross. Why? On the cross, Jesus Christ is being stripped naked. Hebrews 12 says, he did not flinch from the shame. He came to take shame. The Bible says, I did not, I did, I, I, I did not despise the mocking and the spitting. I didn't turn my face away from it. He came to be stripped. He came to be humiliated. He came to lose all of his glory. He came to lose all of his honor. He was stripped, why? So that you and I could be clothed. Salvation is about being clothed. Isaiah 61, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation 
and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness, like a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Ezekiel 16, the Lord said, I spread the corner of my garment over you, he says to his people, and I covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath and entered into a covenant with you, declares the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. You say, well, what does all that mean? Here's what it means. What does it mean to say Jesus was stripped naked so that we could be clothed? Objectively, when you receive Christ as your Savior, objectively, then all that infinite suffering and redemption becomes yours. Objectively. Your sins are taken away. God now accepts you not because of what you have done, because what you have done, if he looks all the way into you like that, you'll be rejected. You know that. Not just God, anybody. Anybody. You don't even live up to your own standards. But in Jesus Christ, you're objectively clothed with Christ's righteousness. You're accepted. The sins are given, are taken away. But not only that, when you look at Jesus Christ dying on the cross, you're subjectively clothed. Hmm? You know what I mean by that? It's not just you know that objectively my sins are put away, but I see him on the cross dying for me. I see him submitting. I see him saying, from hell's heart, I love you. I'm here for you. You know what that means? He has looked all the way into the deepest recesses of your soul, and he's seen everything, and he still loves you. To the degree you know that, you say, well, I don't know if I believe in Christ. I don't know if I believe in God. I don't I'm just, listen, I'm not trying to argue with you. I'm just trying to say, to the degree you know that and believe that, to the degree that that actually grabs your heart, to that degree, you will begin to experience a new kind of identity. You will realize you're clothed in his righteousness. You will, you will lose that need to control what everybody sees. You won't be as upset when you put on five pounds. You won't be as upset at the fact that you haven't been successful this year as you want. You won't, be as, you won't be devastated by criticism. You'll be free. There is a greatness. There is a poise. There is a supreme confidence that is not argued for. It's not attained. It's not scratched for and clawed for. It's received as a gift. And you know what it is? It's resting in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. There, he covered your shame. But not only that, lastly, he also puts us in a family. Uh, when Jesus Christ looks down on the cross and says, Mother, see this disciple here? This is your son. And disciple, see this woman here? This is your mother. He contradicts and yet at the same time affirms Every culture on the face of the earth. Do you know that? See, in Western culture, modern Western culture, the individual is the supreme being. It's individual rights are more important than your family's expectations or your family's mores or your family's values. What's important is you do what is right for you and you fulfill your dream and you decide what is right or wrong for you. That's enlightenment individualism. That's Western culture. And here what we see is Jesus Christ literally with the world on his shoulders. I know some of you say, oh, I feel like the whole world's bearing down on me. Jesus Christ actually had the world bearing down on him. He was in infinite agony, and yet he's thinking of his mom. Because as the eldest son, it was his job to take care of his mother. His mother was an, was an, uh, an older widow. She had no means of support. He was her means of support. 
and now he has to do something about it. He's dying. He has God forsaking him. Every, the whole world is coming down on him, and yet near the very end, he's still thinking about his family responsibilities. That's a, that's a rebuke to modern Western individualism. That's saying family is incredibly important. It's pretty moving. But in non-Western uh, cultures, the family is all important. The individual right is not the idol. The family becomes an idol. And the family is all important. And living up to your family's expectations and pleasing your family and fulfilling your family's expectations and needs, that's more important than anything else. And that's just as much an idol, just an opposite idol. And by the way, some of you have come from non-Western cultures. Your parents live in non-Western cultures and in their mindset, and yet you're trying to work in a Western culture, and you feel absolutely cut between the two, don't you? But I want you to see here, Jesus not only rebukes Western culture but non-Western cultures because he had younger brothers. You know that. John 7 talks about them. But they've rejected him and the gospel. And what Jesus says is, this is your mother, this is your son. You know what he's saying? He's saying, people who believe in me, people who are in Christ have a stronger bond than they do with the, own, their, the members of their own blood family. This is the key bond. This is the, when it comes right down to it, your social class doesn't matter. Whether you come from a good family or a bad family, that doesn't matter as much as the fact that you believe in me. And so what he does is he, he, he demotes and, and uh, he demotes the family and he demotes the individual at the same time. Nobody is like this. No culture is like this because all cultures make an idol of something. But Jesus Christ says, no, you worship me and you worship the Lord and you, and you, are, you receive my grace. Now, that means two things practically. We'll close with this. First of all, you know what's, how great this is? What this is saying is the gospel of Jesus Christ says blood, race, good family, bad family, social standing, that kind of stuff, ultimately is insignificant. Before the throne of God... We're all sinners. All that stuff, doesn't, none of that stuff merits a thing. And before the gospel of God, before the love and righteousness of God, none of those things matter in the grand scheme of things compared to the love and righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know what this means? It means a lot, it should mean the end of bigotry, the end of saying you're not from a very good family. You're not for, the end of that, all those things that divide us, all that snobbery, it should be gone. Matthew Henry, the great commentator, um, his parents, Philip Henry, and I can't remember his mother's name, but doggone it, I'm going to go home to today and find out so I can use this illustration properly. Uh, but Philip, uh, Matthew Henry's father and mother were, had both become Christians. They were converted, and their parents didn't really understand their Christianity very much. And one of the things that really bothered um, Matthew Henry's grandparents was that she was falling in love with this man named Philip Henry. She was from an incredibly high and lofty family, and he was not. He was from the wrong side of the tracks. And at one point, her parents said, this Philip Henry, this Philip Henry, we don't like you seeing him. We don't even know where he's from. We don't even know his roots, see? We don't even know where he's from. And she says, mother and father, I don't care where he's from. I just, all that matters to me is I know where he's going. What she was trying to say, he's on his way into the kingdom of God. He's on his way into the bosom of Jesus, and so am I. And that's what matters. I don't care about the social standing. It's pretty radical, isn't it? But on the other hand, one more thing. The Bible is saying 
If you're a Christian here today, then every other Christian here, whether you've met them or not, are your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your son, or your daughter. See, family relationships are, there's an unconditionality about them, an intensity about them, and an influence about them. Unconditionality. Haven't you noticed some of you have siblings, right? Right? Have you ever noticed that you've got siblings that are not at all the kind of person you'd ever want as a friend? In other words, there's, you know, in other words, there's certain kinds of people that you, they turn you off, you don't like them, you have no interest in them, and that's, and that's just what your brother or sister's like. And yet, because you have the same parent, that doesn't matter. There's a kind of unconditionality about the relationship, right? Secondly, there's an intensity. You can't hide from your siblings who you are. They, they you know, they changed your diaper. They, uh, uh, you know, they, they wiped your nose. They know who you are, but most of all, they influenced you much more than you want to admit. You know, when you're young, and a lot of you are young, you like to say, I am who I am because of I, who I've chosen to be. But the older you get, the more you realize you're just like your family. You are influenced by the people you spend the most time with. Now, what does this mean? Your relationships with other Christians, wherever you live, your relationships with other Christians must have an equivalent relational intensity to that of siblings. You need to be spending a tremendous amount of time in each other's lives. You need to, there needs to be an unconditionality about it in spite of the fact that they do come from different cultures and different races and different classes. There needs to be an intensity about it, a reality about it, and it's the only way you're going to change. If you come to New York City and you come to this big meeting and you take notes and you say, how wonderful, and apart from that, you're not getting deeply into the lives of other Christians, you're not going to change. You're not going to change by taking notes here. You're going to change by, by processing this stuff, processing this stuff with other people. When I went to Gordon-Conwell Seminary, there was a whole lot of terrific teachers, and I learned a lot from the teachers. But what really changed me, what made me the minister I am today, what made me what I am for you today, was my friends who sat around and ate supper and lunch together in the cafeteria and processed it and thought about it and discussed it and figured out what parts we wanted, what parts we didn't, and how it was going to really impact the way in which we uh, lived and moved and had our being. And you will get nothing of Christ-likeness in your life unless you are willing to be in the family Christ put you in. Don't be afraid. There's nothing to be ashamed of. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much that you have uh, given us uh, a family and that family, those family relationships can work now because you've taken away our shame and our need uh, for facades. And that is true because of the gift that you gave us, that you were willing to suffer for us. You're willing to take away everything that was on us and against us. Now, Father, as we take the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves that we are a family because it's a table. And uh, families get together around a table. And we pray that uh, we remember that we're made a family through the brokenness of your son, Jesus Christ. We're grateful for that, and we ask that you would shape us with that. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.